You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 4th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead... The government has decided, out of an abundance of caution, to require travellers from China to submit evidence before boarding their flight of a negative COVID test. That's Australia's response to the opening of China's borders and an expected influx of tourists from the country. Beijing vows to retaliate if the EU follows suit and imposes a block-wide restrictive COVID policy for Chinese travellers. We'll take the temperature of the developing row. Then to Ouagadougou in Burkina Faso, where the country's expelled a French diplomat. And to Wagga Wagga in New South Wales, where the town is welcomed back our contributing editor Andrew Muller to his birthplace. We'll hear about the cultural battle for the soul of Ukraine and we'll investigate how K-pop stars are becoming the faces of high-end international fashion. That's all coming up here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in the news. Russia has blamed the unauthorised use of mobile phones by its soldiers for a deadly Ukrainian missile strike. The US House of Representatives has failed to elect a speaker in its opening session for the first time in a century. Mexicans have authorities have fired the director of a prison from which more than 30 inmates escaped. And a former funeral home owner in the US state of Colorado has been sentenced to 20 years in prison for selling body parts. Do stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, China is reopening its borders after almost three years. This follows the suspension of the zero COVID policy on December the 7th after widespread protests against lockdowns in the country, which is now suffering a surge in infections. Beijing has been downplaying the figures and European countries are concerned that an influx of tourists carrying the virus will shortly arrive. The bloc is meeting today to decide on a united policy on entry requirements, which at present vary from country to country. Well, I'm joined now by Pr- Patricia Thornton, who's Associate Professor in the Politics of China at the University of Oxford, and by Jacob Kierkegaard, who's Senior Fellow at the German Marshall Funds Office in Brussels. Uh, thanks both very much for, for coming on the show. Patricia, international health experts predict at least one million deaths in China this year. But the latest figures from China say there were two new COVID deaths on Monday, which brings the official death toll since the pandemic began to just over 5,000. Well, at the same time, the vice president at a hospital in Shanghai, who's also a member of the city's COVID expert advisory panel, was quoted as saying that 70% of the megacity may have been infected. Well, these figures obviously differ widely. Chinese scientists met with officials from the World Health Organization yesterday for a briefing. Do we know if there's any clarity on the amount of COVID deaths? So we are still waiting to hear from the World Health Organization. We believe that there's going to be some sort of an announcement later today. Um, The Chinese officials uh, are said to have shared genomic data about the variants and the subvariants that have been circulating in China. 
but it's not clear whether they're going to report case numbers. They've already announced in December that they were going to stop uh, releasing case numbers as well as death figures on a daily basis. So it's not clear yet what kind of information exactly was shared with the World Health Organization yesterday. And Jacob, what are the current differing restrictions for Chinese nationals entering the European Union? You have some countries, particularly in Southern Europe, Italy, Spain, which were both countries that have actually, you know, that suffered greatly during at least the initial COVID waves. They have already introduced uh, pre-flight testing, uh, the requirement for vaccines or negative COVID tests, etc. cetera. Uh, then there are other countries uh, in which in Northern Europe, and especially Eastern Europe, uh, where COVID is essentially regarded as being the flu. Uh, So there's no domestic restrictions of any kind, obviously, and they have to date not uh, done uh, anything. But I certainly think that uh, during this week, we will probably see a united EU stance on this. And I, I would also bet or predict that uh, it will be pre-flight testing from China, because I think the concern over uh, the lack of transparency I was just discussed from the Chinese authorities on on COVID in general, and of course, the worry that you will have new variants uh, being transmitted will outweigh any economic concerns that individual EU countries might have uh, of, of, uh, of introducing such measures. Also, because you know, quite frankly, the political standing of China in the EU is not what it was uh, in early in the COVID uh, pandemic. Mm-hmm. I mean, Patricia, China has threatened countermeasures against countries imposing restrictions on Chinese travellers. Do we know exactly what those might be? As far as the Chinese foreign ministry has said that any restrictions that are being or might be imposed by the EU would be temporary, unnecessary and utterly lacking in scientific basis. They've called them a waste of time and resources. And they've indicated that most travel restrictions on Chinese travelers would be considered unacceptable and uh, excessive and that uh, they would find them evidence of political manipulation and discrimination and that they would retaliate in kind. Although, of course, if you want to travel to China today, uh, the same measures are in place. If you land in Beijing or in Shanghai, you must have evidence of a PCR, negative PCR test within 48 hours of your travel. So it's not exactly clear what the Chinese foreign ministry uh, is thinking about when it talks about this reciprocity principle that they are threatening to apply to EU countries if the EU comes out with further more restrictive measures. Mm. I mean, Jacob, just picking up on the fact that China says the European response to this has been political, if the EU does decide to slap restrictions on travellers, I mean, would that be a political move? And what impact would it have on economic ties? No, I don't think it would be a political move. Uh, personally, I think it would be a uh, response to abundance of caution, as it's mentioned. I mean, we simply don't know uh, uh, enough about the type of variance that was measured. I mean, the Chinese authorities are promising that they would supply all sorts of data to the WHO. But we also know, quite frankly, that they're lying about their uh, COVID numbers and deaths, etc. Uh, so this is essentially, you know, years of secrecy, intransparency, etc., that comes back to haunt uh, China 
in 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 various EU capitals. The lack of trust uh, is is very clear. Uh, now there is a political element in general of of uh, of that lack of trust, but overall, I think this is a response to the. Uh, quite frankly, disastrous handling uh, of of COVID in China itself mm. over the last number of years that are are essentially being reflected in these policy measures or likely policy measures. I mean, Patricia, one area in which China is said to have failed is is vaccination. Very low take up, uh, and the citizens uh, have the domestically produced Sinovac or Sinopharm vaccines. They they don't use vaccines, Western vaccines, using uh, mRNA technology which is thought to be more effective at large scale, that the EU has offered to send those vaccines. Why has China refused? Mm -hmm. That's a very good question. But the foreign ministry has already indicated, and Xi Jinping himself, because he's so closely associated with this signature zero COVID approach, uh, has been practicing something that others have called vaccine nationalism, insisting that their citizens can receive only Chinese-made vaccines. We saw a few weeks ago that Germany shipped a bunch of BioNTech uh, vaccines to China, but those were restricted by the Chinese government, only two German nationals living in China. So China has quite steadfastly refused to accept foreign vaccines because they see it as a sign of admitting that their own production uh, capacities are less than those of of other countries in Europe and in the West. Mm. I mean, Jacob, just talking about the secrecy surrounding this and and China's reticence and kind of giving any figures, uh, the EU health chief has said that the bloc could consider immediately scaling up genomic sequencing of COVID-19 infections and monitoring of wastewater, including from airports, to detect any new variants. I mean, that might be a way of getting clarity without actually testing individual passengers. No, I think I think you could do that, but I mean, obviously, there's then the risk that uh, if you if you only do that in the wastewater of the flight, well, then whoever was on the flight is obviously already uh, uh, gotten off the flight and entered European society. So there is the risk that if this person may, you know, might be carrying uh, a new variant, that the spread would already be in uh, in European <clears throat> or in the European population. So I don't think this will be this will suffice. I think this is this is monitoring. This is absolutely necessary. Uh, but I don't think it is uh, it is adequate when it comes to prevention of that risk. Uh, this would not simply be an abundance of caution, if you can if you can use that expression. So I think you will do both in the end. But I mean, the figures here in Britain say one in 45 people have it at the moment. It's clearly rampant already throughout Europe. Does it really matter, Jacob? Well, I mean, I'm not a doctor, but, uh, you know, we did see uh, various uh, new variants emerge. And I think this is really the concern. Uh, because I think you're right. If if we are if we are clear and if we believe that these are the uh, that that the variants that are coming from China are the same that are already uh, rampant throughout Europe, well, then of course you might uh, you can you would say that no, they're not. This is not necessary. But the concern is that this is not the case. Uh, uh, and and but but ex post. Uh, wastewater testing and genomic sequencing, which takes time. Uh, 
is not, in my opinion, and I think policymakers will agree, that, that this would not be an abundance of caution. And the last thing European countries want is have to go through another uh, or having to reintroduce measures because a new variant come about. You know, we remember what happened when Omicron arrived. Uh, uh, everybody wants to avoid that scenario. And if it ruffles feathers in Beijing in the process, well, so be it. Mm. I mean, Patricia, we're all, or Europe is bracing itself for this influx of tourists when restrictions are lifted on Sunday. Do Chinese people want to travel? Uh, I mean, presumably people there are just as concerned about getting the disease. Uh, and if so, is medical tourism a part of it? Are they perhaps planning to come here to get a more effective vaccine? Well, I guess early indications of that come from Hong Kong, which was swamped with people from mainland China who were going across the border in order to get, get access to fever reduction medication and other kinds of over-the-counter medicines that were no longer available in mainland China. So there is some suggestion that that what, what you're calling medical tourism might be part of it. Um, the other big concern, of course, here in the UK is the large numbers of overseas students who will be returning for the uh, winter term, and that will be happening uh, about next week, just at the time that these travel restrictions are lifted. So I, we, I do think we will see a, an uptick. And as to how much, how many more people will be coming, it's difficult to say at this point. <laughs> Well, thank you very much indeed to Patricia Thornton and to Jacob Kierkegaard there. Now, we'll return to this story a little bit later on to see how Australia plans to deal with Chinese travellers. This is The Globalist on Monocle 24. Earlier this week, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva was sworn in for the third time as Brazil's president after a 12-year hiatus. Well, earlier I spoke to Fiona McCauley, Professor of Gender, Peace and Development at the University of Bradford, specialising in Brazil. I began by asking Fiona whether the swearing-in of Lula went off without incident. Pretty much, actually, to most people's surprise. Um, there was a very heavy security presence, as you might imagine. Um, the number of people and vehicles that were allowed into the area in Brasilia was very carefully controlled, huge police presence. Um, and actually, a number of decisions were taken on the, the day to, if you like, expose Lula and his entourage. I mean, they travelled in an open-top uh, Rolls-Royce, down the esplanade and then they stood out in the open for the receiving of the presidential sash. So it was absolutely um, focused on re-establishing the open and transparent democracy that Brazil aspires to have. And that was the message that Lula was giving was, you know, we're back in business. This is Brazilian democracy functioning again. We have nothing to hide. We're going to be as inclusive as possible. He told a rather sweet story breaking with tradition about the pen he used. That's right. Yes, he told a story about how um, back in 1989, because I mean, Lula has run for president many times before he was successful. And uh, he was a well-known trade union leader back in the 1980s. And up in the northeastern state of Piauí, um, he was given a pen by a supporter who said, when you become president, you can sign the uh, the presidential papers 
uh, with this pen. And then he lost it for a number of years. He became president. He didn't have the pen to hand. And then he found it again and was able to use it uh, for uh, to uh, sign the paperwork for his third term of office. Um, so very touching story. And I, I, it partly shows what a... Um, uh, a great sort of orator and how charismatic Lula is that, he, you know, he knows the power of stories and he understood that yesterday was all about reestablishing that narrative of, you know, the unity of Brazil, but also his simple origins and what a long path it had taken him to become president, indeed to return to the presidency. So very skillfully told uh, and, you know, with a, a clear purpose in mind. Now, Bolsonaro was in Florida. Why wasn't he there as would be usual for 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 somebody handing on power? Well, that's that's a complicated answer to that, but possibly because he never actually acknowledged that he had been defeated in the election. Um, He kept, you know, 10 days of silence after the election result was uh, announced and essentially refused to admit that there was a defeat and that there would be a transfer of power. So when having put himself in that position, it would have been very awkward for him, actually, it would have been the, the, the right thing to do, actually, and the big thing to do would have been to admit that an election had occurred and that a winner had been declared quite lawfully and legally and to transfer power. But having played the hand throughout these last couple of months of trying to shed doubt cast doubt on the uh, electoral result itself, he kind of boxed himself into a corner where he he couldn't really show up. And actually, probably there would have been a lot of hostility to him, remembering, of course, that all the people who were there at the inauguration would have been Lula supporters. So, yeah, he chose to duck out, to be out of the country. And none of the other uh, actors who could have taken on the job, for example, the the, the vice president, um, who is a military man, could have done it in his stead, should have done it. In the end, it actually provided a wonderful opportunity for Lula to do something completely different, completely unorthodox, and to invite members of the public of the Brazilian population to come and actually invest him with the power of uh, of presidents. So it created a rather beautiful opportunity rather than it being, you know, an awkward absence. Uh, and Fiona, finally, is there still a possibility of violence from Bolsonaro's supporters? I think that is diminishing. I mean, you can't discount it completely because there are something like four and a half million firearms in circulation in the in the country, and many of those are in the hands of people who are radically opposed to seeing Lula back in power. And we have had scares over the last couple of uh, weeks. We've had, you know, a truck with explosives attached to it was discovered in the capital. There have been other scares as well. So I wouldn't rule it out. But the the, the absence of Bolsonaro and the fact that, that there is now no kind of impetus to challenge the electoral results makes it quite unlikely. I think that the most sort of hardcore supporters of Bolsonaro are now reluctantly going home and demobilizing. You know, there might be the odd person with a gun out there somewhere. That risk still exists. And I'm sure that Lula's security detail will be very much aware of that. But I don't think it will be anything more than the odd incident here and there. I think we're past that moment. That was Fiona McCauley of the University of Bradford. And this is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. 
we know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. It's just gone 8.20 in Zurich, that's 7.20 in Ouagadougou. Whilst the war in Ukraine has provoked moral outrage in the West, in Africa, as well as in Asia, there's resentment of Western sanctions against Russia that have increased prices and caused huge economic difficulties in poorer countries. Well, one of the African countries uh, rejecting the old order is Burkina Faso, where earlier this week the military junta expelled France's ambassador. This move came about as anti-French sentiment continues to grow in the former French colony. Alex Vines is the director of the Africa programme at Chatham House and he joins me on the line now. Alex, many thanks for coming on Monocle 24. What reason was given for the French ambassador's expulsion? Uh, the, the military junta were evasive on, on, on fine detail on why they had expelled him. Uh, they just said that he had to leave uh, and they didn't provide many more details than that. Uh, and the French uh, foreign minister, Kedusay, hasn't said very much either. Um, so it's not exactly clear uh, officially why he's been asked to depart. And he's not the only person who's been asked to depart. So it's not just focusing on, on, on the French ambassador. The UN uh, humanitarian coordinator, country representative, was also asked to leave um, Burkina Faso a couple of weeks ago. So there seems to be a bit of a trend here. Uh, and that, that was Barbara Manzi. Was there a reaction from the UN? Well, the UN said that that was outrageous, that, that, that there was no reason for her to be, 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 be booted out like that um, uh, and that they were alarmed by the situation. Mm. And nothing from the French ministry, anything in the French press? I, I'm wondering if there's any kind of reaction at all. Well, the, 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 I mean, France 24, some of the uh, French media outlets have been talking about that this is a part of a trend. Uh, is, is Burkina Faso trying to copy the neighbouring military junta uh, in Mali, which uh, ha has uh, become extremely uh, hostile to France? Uh, and then speculating whether the, the Russian Federation is making inroads into Burkina Faso in the way that they have done in, 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 in neighbouring Mali. So that, that's the type of thing that's being discussed in the French press at the moment. Mm. And what is the relationship between Burkina Faso and Russia? Um, it, it's a bit closer than it was. Um, there was an, a second military coup, a counter-coup in September last year, and Captain uh, Traore has signaled that he's more interested in in, in, in in a relationship with Russia. There were Russian flags fl flown in, in, in by various demonstrators in support of that, that particular coup in the capital, Ouagadougou. But you do need to be a bit cautious here, I think. Um, the Burkina uh, military junta is different from the Malian one, uh, and I'm not sure what the Russian offer really is. Um, the neighbouring uh, uh, president, uh, president uh, of Ghana, uh, Nanu Kufuadu, claimed that uh, Burkina Faso was offering mineral resources for the Russian private military company Wagner to be involved in providing security in Burkina Faso. 
that's been vehemently denied by, by, by the junta. So there are allegations, but hard proof beyond flying of Russian flags and some rhetoric uh, hasn't been too clear. But mm. what is clear is that there is a real souring of the relationship with Paris, and, and that, that that is part of a regional trend of the, the closeness with, with, with France is declining across the Sahel region, uh, and African countries are looking to diversify their relationships. If you look on the coast, uh, Togo, um, they, for example, uh, last year joined the Commonwealth, for example. So you should see that as diversifying uh, away from France, but not necessarily to Russia. There is just a, a diversification uh, away from over-reliance on France is taking place. Mm. Uh, would you say that anti-French sentiment has grown since Traoré seized power in September? Um, I think that's probably uh, the, the junta has been stoking it up because it's looking for, for as I said, diversified relations and, and not just uh, one that uh, is based on a, an assumption of a security guarantee from France that, that, that had, had occurred previously. So, um, yes, there is, a great, uh, there, there is a sense that the re relationships with the old colonial power have had to change and the French model in, in, in modern Africa has been uh, much more one that's akin to neo-colonialism. It was called France Afrique. Uh, that is uh, being completely scrapped now and, and redesigned in Paris. Uh, French uh, Africa planners recognise that hasn't been fit for purpose. Mm. Now, we know that extremist attacks have been going on, creating a humanitarian crisis in the country. And I wondered if you could tell us about the situation in the ground, particularly in, in Nuna, in the northwestern town, where I understand 28 bodies of people who were shot dead have been discovered. Yeah, I mean, security in broader Burkina Faso is the reason for these military coups. The, 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 the democratically elected government had struggled to, to, to provide security uh, and uh, jihadi um, groups have been uh, increasing their, their, their activity. Uh, and so that created the, the, the situation of a coup and then a, a, a counter coup in that the, the previous military junta hadn't been performing too well neither. Uh, and so you are in this horrible situation still of deteriorating security because these military juntas aren't able to, in fact, improve the security either. And there has been uh, this report of, of deaths in, in the north of Burkina Faso, although what this, this particular incident that you're referring to seems to be is killings by a militia, which the junta has set up uh, to counter the, uh, the, the insurgents. And again, that's part of the problem. Once you start arming civilians who are poorly trained, uh, ill-disciplined uh, and can be also uh, very unaccountable. And, and I think that's what's just happened, unfortunately, in the north. Now, there was a French troop presence in Burkina Faso. Are they still there? So the, the, uh, last year, uh, um, in February, uh, President Macron signalled a complete redesign of the French posture in, in, in this part of the world, the Sahel. Uh, and so uh, France withdrew its uh, support in Mali uh, and uh, has reconfigured focusing on neighbouring Niger, where it will have kind of uh, military assets and uh, a, a kind of special force component for the EU. Um, so fr France's presence in, in Burkina is, is, is also much, much reduced. What I think it, we can see is that France and Western allies are building a cordon sanitaire, basically, for security provision around Mali in particular, 
but, but also increasingly maybe now Burkina Faso and, and hoping that the problems in those two countries don't contage to, 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 to other neighbours. Alex, thank you very much indeed. That was the director of the Chatham House Africa programme, Alex Vines. We've just brought you news from Wagadugu in Burkina Faso, and now we turn to Wagga Wagga in New South Wales to catch up with Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller. Andrew, is there really a place called Wagga Wagga, and do you really come from there? Uh, yes, to both of those things. It is, to, to, on a technical point, it's pronounced Wagga Wagga, but yes, I was in fact <laughs> born here, and I am, I am broadcasting from there right now. And if our listeners are very alert, they might just about hear the rainbow lorikeets and galahs squawking outside the window. Well, thank you for the clarity on how to pronounce it. Um, I would like to look at the big stories happening in Australia at the moment. Earlier on in the show, uh, we heard uh, an Australian official saying that that actually it might be an excess of caution, but Australia is going to take some kind of measures against Chinese tourists. Uh, Yeah, Australia will be asking all Chinese people or people flying out of China to test positive for COVID-19 before they get on the plane. This is despite uh, Australia's chief medical officer, Paul Kelly, advising that there was no need for this, uh, not sufficient public health rationale. uh, And also he's making the point that there's people flying into Australia from all sorts of other places uh, and nobody's asking them to take a COVID-19 test. I I mean, the Australian government saying it's an abundance of caution, and that's probably reasonable enough on health grounds, but there's also obviously politics in play here, and I think over the sweep of Australian history, nobody has ever lost votes beating up on China. Mm. How important are Chinese tourists, and particularly students, to the Australian economy? Oh, massively. I mean, before the, the pandemic, it was a, a huge thing, especially for the Australian uh, education sector. And it, it's still the case that Australia is nowhere near recovered uh, in terms of all kinds of international travellers. I mean, just in the few days I've been here, in Mel- I was in Melbourne uh, earlier this week, uh, there's some tourists filtering back, but really not very many. Uh, you can see that a lot of places, souvenir shops and so on, cater specifically to tourists aren't really all the way open again yet. Uh, I didn't detect many non-Australian people on my flight out here. So, yeah, there's still a long way to go before normality returns in that respect. And, And the Chinese tourism sector in particular is important. Oh, yeah, again, absolutely, hugely, colossally important, or it was pre-pandemic. And again, I don't know how soon that's coming back. Uh, Obviously, it's going to be difficult for Chinese people to travel anywhere because Australia, as the Australian government is pointing out, and as your guests earlier in the show pointed out, is not alone uh, in making them an exception. But but getting getting to Australia, even from China, which is only a single hop flight, was never a small or cheap undertaking. Uh, And until airfares, uh, he said, speaking from bitter experience, returned to their pre-pandemic levels, I'm not sure those levels of tourism or even foreign students are coming back 
either. Mm. Andrew, let's uh, let's have a look at what else is happening in Australia. Uh, I think you've got a wildlife story for us. Uh, I do have a wildlife story for us. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I would say I'm sorry this is not happening closer to where I am broadcasting from. It is happening half a continent away, but also I'm quite glad I'm not too close to this story. Uh, this is the Proserpine River uh, in Queensland, which has, has more crocodiles per kilometre than any other system in Queensland. And it's just a, a lovely local story being gleefully reported by all Australian media. Uh, somebody stole a car and dumped it in the Proserpine River, which left the police with the challenge uh, of retrieving a stolen car from a river, which, you know, as they have said, is, is you know, that's a, that's a tough gig at the best of times. But obviously there is, there is the wildlife and the, the ABC's report, I think, sums it up nicely. There's just a explaining the logistics of this, that they they put shark nets around the area, that they'll have a marksman with a rifle standing by in case one of the crocodiles get too close. But there's just a lovely bit of Australian understatement from the sergeant overseeing the operation who said none of the divers uh, were keen. Yeah, I'll bet they weren't. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know what? I can tell you a crocodile story from Wagadougou. Oh, please. <laughs> Which is that there are sacred crocodiles. It's not actually in Wagadougou. Uh, it's about 30 kilometres uh, from there in a, in a village called Bazuli. Uh, very unique tradition. These are not um, not the kind of crocodiles. you. I think in Australia you have saltwater crocodiles. Is that correct? Uh, indeed so, yes. Yeah. These are Nile crocodiles and they're actually uh, the well, the West African or the desert crocodile. Uh, and they're mostly found in forested regions and open habitats and not quite as fierce as the ones you have there. But um, these uh, crocodiles have for years been worshipped in this particular part of Burkina Faso and also just across the border. Uh, And uh, they're they're fed by the local population. Uh, They are sat on by them. There are photographs of people sitting on these crocodiles. But to link it back to your COVID story, of course, this uh, village, uh, Bazule, attracted a huge amount of tourists who wanted to come and pet the crocodiles. And those people are no longer coming. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think the crocodiles of the Proserpine River are sacred as such, but I would be willing to bet that the the Almighty's name has been invoked in connection with them a good few times. I'm quite sure. Andrew Muller <laughs> in Wagga Wagga, thank you very much indeed. And here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. The US House of Representatives has failed to elect a speaker in its opening session for the first time in a century. Republican Kevin McCarthy has vowed to stay in the race despite failing three election attempts due to opposition from hardline members of the party. Russia has blamed the unauthorised use of mobile phones by its soldiers for a deadly Ukrainian missile strike. The Defence Ministry says phone data allowed Ukrainian forces to locate and hit a barracks, killing 89 people in Makivka. Moscow says officials involved will be held responsible. Mexican authorities have fired the director of a prison from which more than 30 inmates escaped following a riot. The Defence Ministry says it's flown 200 military personnel to Suarez Juarez to fight organised crime as it hunts for the escaped convicts. And a former funeral home owner in the US state of Colorado has been sentenced to 20 years in prison for dissecting more than 500 corpses and selling body parts without permission. Her mother also pled guilty for fraud and was sentenced to 15 years. The judge sent them to prison immediately. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned.
The Kremlin has weaponized culture on its war on Ukraine, trying to wipe out the language, history and literature. But Ukrainians are now rewriting that narrative and taking control of their own cultural legacy in literature, art, public buildings and monuments. Dr Sasha Dovshik is the Special Projects Curator at the Ukrainian Institute here in London. Sasha, welcome to the show. How has Russia extended the battle for Ukraine to the cultural sphere? Good morning. It's uh, a pleasure to be here with you. Indeed, you're quite right in that Russia has weaponized culture. In uh, fact, it's been weaponizing culture for more than three centuries. Uh, We can think, for example, of um, Catherine, who is known as the great in the outer world, uh, Catherine II of Russia. Uh, In Ukraine, uh, she's remembered quite differently. For example, in the Uh, 18th century, she demolished the Zaporizhian host, which was the stronghold of Zaporizhian Cossacks, the proverbial heroes of Ukrainian history. Um, They were formed largely from runaway peasants who managed to form themselves into a formidable military force to secure a semi-autonomy in the southeast of the country. Um, They also had quite different um, rules of governance, a proto-democracy of sorts that was quite different from the monarchies that surrounded them. So uh, uh, this Ukrainian historical formation uh, to which Ukrainians usually date back their uh, traditions of statehood, it was demolished by Catherine the Great. And of course, more recently, we're seeing uh, Russian language being encouraged in in the Donbass, for instance, children being educated exclusively in Russian uh, and so on. A big push just to wipe out Ukrainian identity. Uh, And that comes, of course, with a a great deal of the culture. Uh, That's true. That's true. Uh, In the Donetsk and Luhansk regions of uh, Ukraine, which uh, have been occupied for eight years by Russia, Um, There is a special push, for example, to eradicate Ukrainian literature, Ukrainian books from the libraries. Uh, In this March alone, 70 libraries were purged by the occupying forces for the books that deal with Ukrainian identity, Ukrainian culture. Those books were destroyed and it just shows how much of importance Ukrainian culture um, Ukrainian identity is for Russians. Mm. Uh, well, Ukraine is fighting back, though, on a number of cultural fronts. Let's take literature specifically. What is the country doing to, to counter that Russian push? Um, I think the most important thing is the uh, focus on Ukrainian writers and Ukrainian literature at this point. Um, we are doubling down on translating, reevaluating our past. Um, as well as rethinking what imperialist narratives have done to our self-perception as Ukrainians and the image of Ukrainian culture abroad. Um, Probably one of the writers who is in the focus right now is Mikhail Bulgakov, who was born in Kiev, but was actually um, a citizen of the Russian Empire and whose uh, narratives of Ukrainian statehood, of Ukrainian nationhood are quite, dam- uh, are quite damaging for uh, Ukrainian culture at this point. So Ukrainians are trying to reassess his legacy and uh, to view him uh, for what he was for Ukraine um, as uh, a Russian Uh, anti-Ukrainian, quite chauvinistic writer. Mm. This is just one example. Uh, What about public statues? I know you mentioned Catherine the Great, as as she's known uh, earlier. I believe that statue is being taken down. 
this is true. Uh, it was taken down uh, recently in December, I believe. Um, and funny thing about that statue is that it was actually erected in early 2000s. And there is a myth of Catherine as a founder of Odessa, where the statue in Odessa, uh, where the statue to her um, was uh, recently removed. Uh, actually, Catherine had nothing to do with Odessa. She just renamed the uh, town that existed there since the 15th century. And this practice is what Russians are doing all over Ukraine. When they occupy a new town, a new place, a new village, the first thing that they are doing, they're removing all signs of Ukrainian language there. They're renaming place so, to make, so as to make it Russian, which uh, obviously is not the case. It's just one of the colonial practices that has to be reckoned with. And what happens to Russian artefacts and monuments? Are they stored or returned or destroyed? Uh, there is a debate as to what to, uh, to do with these monuments. So there are a couple of uh, strategies adopted worldwide, uh, such as museums of totalitarianism, for example, or museums of uh, colonialism. Um, this is now being discussed. Another uh, possible way to dispose of these statues or just relocate them to art museums. And I believe this is what is happening to the statue of uh, Catherine in Odessa. Um, it will be in the Art Museum of Odessa with an appropriate caption. Mm. I wonder what happens to great writers of history. So, I don't know, Tolstoy or someone. Are these still acceptable? It uh, probably depends on whom you ask in Ukraine. Uh, but uh, more generally, the focus has shifted from the uh, so-called uh, great Russian culture to the Ukrainian culture. And we are try to, trying to educate ourselves and educate the world at large about uh, the Tolstoy's and Dostoevsky's of Ukraine, such as uh, our great national writers, Taras Shevchenko, Lysa Ukrainka, who definitely have not been enjoying the same amount of attention, but definitely do deserve it. Mm. Uh, and Sasha, finally, you're here in London with the Ukrainian Cultural Institute. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about, about your work there. Um, well, we are trying to shed light on Ukrainian culture uh, in the UK and uh, in the world at large. Uh, for example, we establish in a number of literary programs, um, such as the Translation uh, Prize for Ukrainian uh, Literature. Uh, we are trying to make canonical and contemporary Ukrainian texts more widely av available to readers uh, of English. Um, we are supporting Ukrainian contemporary writers by organizing writing residencies that look at uh, global challenges through the prison of Ukraine, such as Ukraine Lab. And we are also running a rich program of events here in London, inviting cultural practitioners, artists, but also speakers on foreign policy, on current affairs, so that we have Ukrainian perspectives on what is going on in Ukraine and in the world which we believe are quite crucial at this time. Sasha, many thanks indeed. That's Sasha Dovshik. She's from the Ukrainian Cultural Institute and you can find details of all of those events and programmes on their website. This is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. 
16.43 in Tokyo, that's 8.43 in Rome, and we'll continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me is Enrico Francesini, who's London correspondent for the Italian daily newspaper La Repubblica. Good morning to you, Enrico. Many thanks for, for joining us. Uh, now, yesterday we were reporting on the fact that Israel's security minister has made a surprise visit to the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. This is highly controversial, uh, and this is quite a personal story to you because you were a correspondent in Israel when Ariel Sharon, who was then the Likud leader, did the same. And of course, that started the Second Intifada. Tell us more. Yes, I mean, uh, I remember very well. Uh, it was a controversial visit. Uh, there was no, it was clearly a political provocation. Uh, we have to understand the Al-Aqsa Mosque is the, one of the, of the holiest places for Islam in, in the world. And um, there is an agreement uh, started from 1948, uh, the, the birth of the state of Israel, that Jordan as a jurisdiction, a supervision of the area, and this agreement uh, is basically a, a status quo that says that uh, Israeli citizens can visit uh, the site, but cannot pray in an open uh, way, can, cannot have a, a, an open celebration. Now, uh, Minister Ben Gvir, the Minister of Security, who is uh, a, a one of the leaders of uh, this uh, far-right uh, party, uh, which uh, allowed Benjamin Netanyahu to form a new uh, coalition and go back to power, uh, made exactly this. It was like a, a march uh, through uh, the, the square in front of the mosque, uh, surrounded by police, by a religious figure. Uh, there was no really a reason for that other than to, to say that the, the status quo is no longer valid, that Israel can go wherever it went, it won't. And, and this has provoked condemnation, unanimous condemnation from the United States, which is the biggest allies of Israel, from the United Arab Emirates, which is one of the countries who signed the uh, Abraham agreements, the, the peace agreements in the time of uh, President Trump with Israel, uh, and uh, from Jordan, of course, which, as I said, is the supervision of this area. The, the question is what will happen now? Will we see a new intifada, a new explosion of violence like after the visit by Ariel Sharon? Have we had any reaction from Hamas? Well, the, the reaction is, has not come from Hamas for the moment. There has been protest in all the, the Palestinian territories, not only from Hamas, which controls, as we want to remind our uh, the people who listen, uh, the Gaza strips in the south of, of this area, but from West, the West Bank, which is closer to uh, to uh, Jerusalem, to the old city of Jerusalem, where this uh, site is based. So the, the next day or two will tell if there are um, um, terrorist attacks, if there are protests, uh, how the police will react. Of course, uh, this goes back to Benjamin Netanyahu. He uh, made a pact with the devil, in a sense, because in order to go back to government, yet to make a pact with this far-right party who has never been in power before. People say, commentators say, this is the most far-right government Israel has ever had. Uh, Netanyahu wanted to go back to government to cover also his uh, corruption charges, uh, to protect himself from the trial he will have in the next few months. 
but uh, in this way, he had to make a compromise with the far right. And uh, at first, he said he would not have allowed such a visit, but then he, he gave up. And, and we'll see what this uh, will, uh, will bring to Israel. There are heavy, um, a lot of worries inside Israel itself for uh, the stability of, of the country after this uh, event. Mm. Let's go to your own paper now, La Repubblica, and a story about nostalgia of East Germany in Berlin. <laughs> yes, this is something that has happened uh, uh, for several years now. Uh, it has a name, Ostalgia, which is, sounds like uh, nostalgia of the East. Uh, it is symbolized now recently by the boom of an old car that uh, uh, existed at the time of East Germany, when East Germany was one of the communist strongholds in Eastern Europe, the Trabant. Some people who are familiar uh, with the car might remember it. It was considered the ugliest and slowest and one of the worst cars ever produced. But in the communist system, there was not much better. I was a correspondent in the Soviet Union at the time. There were similar cars in the Soviet Union. And when there was no chance to buy a Western car, you had to, to, to accept what was coming. Now, the, the fact is that the Trabant stopped production 30 years ago, but there are still uh, several uh, tens of thousands of cars in garages, in, in private cars that have been restored, repaired and put back into the market. And they have uh, quite a good price on the market, 10,000 euros for one of these cars and people uh, like to drive them. Now, why? You can wonder why. Well, there is uh, not maybe nostalgia of communism itself. Uh, there is an old joke uh, that you might maybe Georgina know from uh, of two dames, two aristocratic ladies at the time of rest restoration after the French Revolution in France and one of them says, ah, Danton, ah, Robespierre and the other says, but, but Madame, we had the guillotine at the time, you know, we lost uh, our head and the other one says, yes but we were young and <laughs> this might explain the nostalgia for the Trabant uh, I have learnt a new word as a result of uh, the your next piece, where you're pointing out uh, uh, the, the lack of snow uh, in alpine resorts. Apparently, the snow shortage, the word for that is schneemangel. <laughs> well, this is, uh, <clears throat> I don't know how many people really use this word. And the, the Alps, of course, uh, we have the Italian Alps, the French Alps, the Austrian, the Swiss, uh, these wonderful mountains where all of us when we when we travel to southern europe uh, particularly to italy uh, it happens as it happens to me we fly over over the alps and every year we see less snow and uh, from the reports that are coming this year there is uh, the minimum snow there has never been so so little snow and uh, it's uh, uh, of course uh, there was the habit of uh, fabricating snow with with these cannons who shoot in the air at water that then becomes uh, ice and then snow. So we have artificial snow, at least on the slopes. But this year, it's also exceptionally 
warm. And uh, in order to make uh, artificial snow, you have to have uh, sub-zero or zero temperature. And now, uh, as you know, uh, we have seen all over Europe, uh, even in Northern Europe, uh, incredible temperature. There, the day were almost uh, 20 degrees in Warsaw, in Poland. And so there is basically no snow. It's a tragedy for people who love skiing. It's a tragedy for the ski industry. A lot of people in the mountains live Thanks to this, of course, it's a tragic reminder of the effects of uh, climate change. Mm. Uh, now, tourism is also being uh, influenced in Thailand, but this more to do with COVID, I suspect. Uh, this is about elephants and uh, Thailand's tourism industry. Yes, uh, well, uh, elephants, uh, Thailand uh, had a population of natural, of, of, of elephants in the wild that had been domesticated, kept for, uh, they, was, they were used in the past for hard labor, then uh, thanks to animal rights, this was stopped, but uh, elephants are still used, basically were used for tourism. Uh, but uh, COVID stopped tourism in its track for two years and so all the people who uh, use the elephants to take tourists around or to use the elephants for for some spectacles some, for some controversial shows uh, um, have been uh, basically unemployed and the elephants themselves, the elephants need to be taken care of, to be fed. And, and now, in addition, now the tourism has, has started again, but uh, COVID is there too, uh, as we know, is, has not gone away completely. And in addition to this, there are still animal rights groups who say this is uh, these habits to, should stop because the way the elephants are used uh, um, for the tourism industry is humiliating for the animals and it is not safe, uh, is not good. The problem is what to do with elephants. And I read on the BBC that uh, there are villages in Thailand where you, you walk through it and you see elephants kept uh, in little uh, uh, corals in front of, of the of the houses, like you'd see horses or cows or sheep in other countries. So villages of elephants. Uh, and this is a problem probably the state should take care of and then create some national parks where they can be kept in better conditions. Enrico, thank you very much indeed. That was Enrico Francesini from La Repubblica. This is The Globalist. It's time to talk fashion news with the luxury brand consultant, content strategist, editor and writer, Rebecca Tay. Rebecca, Happy New Year to you. Wonderful to speak to you again. Uh, Let's talk about Gucci uh, and, in fact, New Year, because it's launching a Lunar New Year capsule. Tell us that. Yes, that's right. And Happy New Year to you too, Georgina. Uh, So Gucci was one of the sort of first out of the gate. Um, They've launched their Lunar New Year collection for the Year of the Rabbit, which is officially on January 22nd, so just over two weeks away. Um, So it's kind of a sort of a mixed collection. Gucci is known for its very eclectic, uh, very wide-ranging collections. And this one has everything from kind of bunny print, uh, psychedelic colors to slightly more just paired back um, pieces from its normal collections, just in different colorways for this for this capsule. Uh, and would this be aimed mostly at the Chinese market, given that it celebrates Lunar New Year? 
Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot because obviously there's been a lot of focus on China and the Chinese consumer and um, it's come back after COVID. Um, and there's definitely still a lot of potential, I think, in, in the region. I think a lot of brands are still looking at opening more stores over there and kind of really hoping that um, the consumers there bound, uh, bounce back. Um, and capsules like that celebrate specifically Lunar New Year definitely help mm. sort of speak to that customer. Now, of course, many of us were lucky enough to get gifts this Christmas, but some of them didn't fit. But it seems like shops are changing their attitude about uh, uh, returns. Yes, exactly. I think um, this first started to sort of become a bit of a trend uh, last year, actually. So Zara was the first one, I think, that got a lot of heat in May. Um, it started charging for returns. So if you purchase something online on zara.co.uk um, and you returned it through a third party, you actually had to pay about £2, I think it was at the time, um, for a return. So it was no longer free. You know, obviously, a lot of retailers were sort of advertising free shipping for everything and free returns. Um, but as you said, now that we're coming off of the holiday and the festive season, there's, I think, no sign of returns slowing down at all. If, 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 if anything, especially in the US, they're saying that actually they'll be up this year mm. um, after this festive season. Finally, I want to look at K-pop and high-end fashion. Uh, a couple of pop stars, K-pop stars have been named brand ambassadors. Yeah, so Blackpink is um, a very popular K-pop band. Um, and one of the singers, Rosé, has actually been a Tiffany & Co. ambassador for a little while, but she's the newest face of its uh, lock collection. So this is one of its particular jewellery collections. Um, but the newest one is um, Hain, I think is how you say her name. Um, and she's from a band called New Jeans, and she's just been announced Louis Vuitton's newest ambassador. And it's quite big news because she's actually only, I think she's 14 years old. So obviously she's very, very young. Um, it's a strategy for the brand to really um, reach out to kind of young consumers. And they're really saying that she's already making her mark in the world of fashion. Um, she's definitely one of the most fashionable, I think, in the group, although all of them to me are very, very fashionable. Um, and yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they kind of take this on board with all of the other ambassadors that they have in their roster. It's quite extraordinary, though, just 14 years old. I mean, that's enormously young. Yes, exactly. And I think um, New Jeans as well is, is a very new brand, uh, is a very new band also a brand, um, but they only launched, I think it was last year in August. Um, so they first released a single last year. It was, you know, it hit crazy uh, records within with its first single in the first week. I think it sold something like 300,000 um, in the first week. Um, and yeah, I think it's, you know, it's one of these sort of phenomena of K-pop. And if you follow Korean pop and if you, it is quite catchy if you listen to any of the music. Um, and we love it here for at Monocle. Like Louis Vuitton to be. <laughs> yeah. Rebecca, <laughs> yes. thank you very much indeed. That was Rebecca, Pe Rebecca Tay. And that's it for today's programme. Many thanks to our producers, Laura Kramer and Emma Searle. And our studio manager today was Nora Hall. After the headlines, there's more music. Yes, including some K-pop. Uh, that's all coming up today. And The Briefing is live at midday in London and The Globalist will return at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. I'll be back with you on The Daily tomorrow evening. Thank you for listening.